Good morning, Crossroads Church. I am John Gross, pastoral resident here. You might remember me as the discount version of Pastor Matt Manning. This morning, it is my happy privilege to spend some time with you together as we continue our sermon series that's season three of the book of Acts. So what we're doing with the book of Acts is instead of going through all 28 chapters in a row, that would just be a lot of the same thing for a long time, we're kind of breaking it up into seasons, taking our cues from seasons of TV shows because that's kind of fun. And the theme for this season is really the theme that we just sang about together. It's this theme that the church is becoming the unstoppable kingdom of God. Right now, we're working through the middle of the book of Acts, and what happens is we see time and again that the church is overcoming obstacles, that the church, despite opposition, is the unstoppable kingdom of God. That is at the heart of the passages that we're working through in the book of Acts throughout this series. And it's at the heart of the passage that we're going to be looking at later on this morning. And I think this concept that the church is the unstoppable kingdom of God, it's something that we need to hear when we consider some of the realities about the church in America. Earlier this year, Pastor Matt gave all of us on staff a reading assignment. Now, the reading assignment came with a really unhappy part that I'm not going to share with you. Basically, he asked us to read an article online. It came from The Guardian, and it was an article summarizing the decline of the church in America. Pastor Matt also made us violate a rule that I hold very personally, and that rule is do not ever read the comment section of anything on the internet. Now, I'm not going to share with you anything from that comment section. I'm not going to share with you the worst part of this, but I am going to share with you a part that's still a little bit unsettling, and that is just some numbers about the reality of the church in America. So if we could have that on the screen. All right, first one, 1972, 92% of Americans identified as Christian. That number is down to 64% in 2020. And now you might think, okay, well, maybe a part of that has to do with this thing, starts with co, rhymes with brovid, maybe that's kind of messing with the numbers a little bit, and it is messing with the numbers, but just a little bit. Right now, church attendance is at 85% of its pre-pandemic level. So that's a factor, but that's not really telling the whole story. Because see, some of these issues, they, they go back to pre-pandemic times, the long distant before times. In 2019, 36% of the population attended church either frequently or occasionally. The other 64% would have identified their church attendance either as infrequent or not at all. So they might have been at most in maybe a sort of a Christmas and Easter type of church attendance pattern. And then another thing that really shows that this church decline we're seeing these days is something unprecedented is that in 2019, 4,500 churches closed, 3,000 churches opened. This is actually a new thing for the quantity of churches closing to be one and a half times the size of the quantity of churches opening. Up until this point in American history, we have year over year seen more churches open than close, and for the first time, we're starting to see that number move the other way around. And then one of the things that our family team is unfortunately all too well aware of is that even though, even when you have high schoolers who go to church pretty consistently for at least a year of their high school experience, seven out of 10 don't go to church at all 
in the ages of 18 through 22, and that's just of the kids who had a pretty strong church experience at some point in high school. These numbers are telling a pretty simple, straightforward story. The church in America is in decline. Some of these numbers, you can sprinkle a little salt and sugar on them to make them sound less worse. For example, you know, 1972, 92% of people identified as Christians. I feel a little skeptical about that because it might have been a cultural nicety to identify as Christian. Maybe that 64% number we're seeing today is less reflective of the realities of, you know, what people actually believe and think and do, and maybe more just a reflection of people choosing to be more honest. Also, a lot of the church closures that we've seen may be the result of church transfer growth. People leave a smaller church and enter a larger one that has more things to offer. Maybe that's a factor, but even if you take these factors into consideration, the overall story is one of decline. And I bring this up for you because I think it carries for us a really critical question that I want us to have at the front of our minds as we dive into the book of Acts together this morning. And that question is this, what does it mean to hang on to hope for the movement of the gospel when the church in our country is clearly in decline? What does it mean to hang on to hope in the movement of the gospel when there are clear obstacles to the gospel's movement in our country. So with that, we're going to go ahead and take a look at Acts chapter 13. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 13 of Acts. I'm going to set up a little bit of context. We're going to concentrate our time mostly at the end of this chapter. So I'm going to set up for you what's going on in the beginning of this chapter. So the book of Acts tells the story of the beginning of church history. It tells the story of how the church started from this small group of people in Jerusalem. It expanded to all of Judea and Samaria, basically northern Israel, and then expanded to the ends of the earth until Paul brought the gospel all the way to Rome. And then we leave off the part conveniently that, that Paul died there, but the gospel did get to Rome. That's the story of the book of Acts. And where we're at in Acts chapter 13 is the beginning of Paul's ministry to non-Jewish people. So this is the part where really the gospel starts taking off it like wildfire and spreading to non-Jewish people. And most of Acts 13 is a sermon preached by Paul. So what's going on is Paul is on his missionary journeys. He's getting to Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and he gets to a city called Antioch in the middle of a province called Pisidia. Basically, it's just right smack dab in the middle of modern-day Turkey, more or less. And what happens is he's thinking, okay, how do I strategically proclaim Jesus? And so what he does is he goes to the place where the story about Jesus the Messiah is most likely to make some kind of sense. So he goes to a synagogue. So he shows up to a Sabbath service, and at the end of the service, the leader says, okay, brothers, is there anyone who has a word of encouragement or exhortation for the congregation? And Paul, being quite an opportunist and maybe risking overstaying his welcome a little bit, stands up and preaches an entire sermon. The content of that sermon is the majority of Acts chapter 13. And what Paul does in Acts 13 is he tells a story that takes into consideration the entire sweep of the Old Testament and then shows how Jesus is the end of that story. So he talks about Moses, he talks about David, and then says, hey, you know this David guy? Well, there's a son of David who died for our sins and has granted us a freedom that we're never going to find by simply trying to follow all the rules. This is Jesus. And so what happens is Paul gets in front of a synagogue with his colleague Barnabas, 
explains the story of the Old Testament with Jesus as its endpoint, and then in Acts 13, 42, we start to see how that was received. So let's see what happened. Acts 13, 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas, they're really taking a risk. They're going out on a limb, going into this congregation, taking advantage of the opportunity to go ahead and share something. They tell the story of Jesus, and it's, you know, taking up a lot of time and space, giving a whole sermon telling the story of Jesus, and then they're positively received. So what happens the next Sabbath? Well, we find that out in verses 44 and 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So here's what happened. Paul gets up, he tells the story of the gospel, does his Old Testament survey leading all the way up to the story of Jesus. People are really excited about it. Then he comes back for the encore and there's this group of people that are absolutely not having any of it. Now this probably isn't all the Jewish people because we saw just a couple verses before that first Sabbath, a lot of the Jews, they're really on board with it. So we have this vocal subgroup of the Jewish population who are getting up and publicly reviling Paul. In fact, that word for reviling Greek, it's just, it's the word blaspheme. It's this pretty aggressive slander and libel. They're not having any of it. And then we see in verse 50, just how bad things got. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing, that is the women who have a lot of connections, a lot of wealth, a lot of property. They might not have official city positions, but you kind of know they're the ones who run the city. So the Jews incited those women with a lot of wealth and power and also the leading men of the city with all the official positions. He got all the, the, the Jewish group that wasn't having any of what Paul was telling. They got these elites together, stirred up persecution, probably a threat to Paul and Barnabas's physical safety. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So what happens? Here's where we're at. Paul and Barnabas, they go to Pisidian Antioch. They tell the gospel story. It gets well received. The next week they have the invitation to come back and then they are driven out of town. And what we see in the whole story is we see a little bit about how the story of the church is also the story of the unstoppable kingdom of God. But before we get into that, before we get into the really happy part, I want to talk a little bit, I want to pause, and I want to talk about how the opposition that Paul and Barnabas face is different than the obstacles that the church in America is running into. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit because even though our obstacles and their obstacles, they're not the same thing, I think the reason for hope that Paul and Barnabas have, I think that reason is going to be really instructive for us. But here's how our struggles are different than the struggles that Paul and Barnabas had. First of all, we are probably not going to get driven out of town. That's just not the way that opposition to the church in America works. People are not starting riots and driving the church away. That's just not what we deal with. We're not dealing with these kinds of threats to our physical safety. But what we are dealing with is a change in culture that makes it really, really challenging to just go ahead and connect the dots and point to the story of Jesus. 
See, we live in what is called a secular age, and philosopher Charles Taylor, he's written this big old tome called a secular age, or he describes in detail what secularism is, and he makes very clear that the phenomenon he's describing, it's not something where people like the guy who wrote The God Delusion suddenly have the upper hand. Statistically, atheism actually isn't really all that popular. People don't like to be aggressively anti-theistic. Secularism is also not the absence of God from certain kinds of public discourse. Secularism isn't this active antagonism, but really secularism is just this phenomenon where belief in God goes from a cultural given that people are sort of born into to just sort of one option among many. And in fact, in our day and age, the most potent rival to Christian belief is not some kind of atheism or agnosticism or any kind of anti-theist type of thing. It's really this broader category of spiritual but not religious. It's having some awareness and sensitivity to spiritual things, but really not being on board with any one given expression of it in organized religion. And I realize there might be some of you here where where you are on your spiritual journey would be best identified with a spiritual but not religious label. If you are here today, I want you to know, one, that you're welcome, and two, you're probably in the top percentile among people in this room at understanding the communication problems that Christians have. See, when Paul and Barnabas and Acts, when they go into the synagogue, what happens is Paul gets up, he tells a story of the Old Testament, moves phase by phase through the Old Testament, he just connects dots and eventually gets to one more dot, that's Jesus. But the problem that we run into in a secular age is that the dots aren't really there for us to connect. It's really challenging to say God loves you when the concept of a God who created and sustains the universe, who has a personality that is capable of feeling emotions like love, when that concept isn't really an established thing you can pre-understand, it's harder to say that God loves you. It's harder to even communicate the idea that Jesus is a solution to a sin problem when the very concept of sin sounds archaic and antiquated when rival concepts like karma are actually much more easily understood. It's really different to talk about faith in Jesus when you don't have a common ground of understanding that faith in Jesus means something more than believing that he's a really nice philosopher or ethicist or teacher, but also believes that he has some kind of current claim on your life that he can be a savior and Lord. Just the idea that those are different things, yet how one would move into the savior and Lord phase, that's a harder and harder thing to communicate. And that is to say nothing about the massive obstacles from the very visible public moral failings of Christian leaders and the fact that many Christians, those most conservative and most committed, tend to be known more for what we are against than what we are for. So we have this problem in front of us where it's not just that we have this obstacle, but we're not getting actively opposed the way Paul and Barnabas were, but we actually have a problem that's much harder. Because where Paul and Barnabas were able to come up and connect some dots, we live in an environment where the dots aren't necessarily there for us to connect. And so we have, on a wide, massive scale, the decline of the church in our country. Welcome to church, everybody. I hope this is a happy morning for you. Uh, so today we're going to go ahead and look into what it is that gave Paul and Barnabas hope when they were in the process of sustaining persecution that would then drive them out of town, 
how it is that they sustain the hope that we see at the very end of the chapter. That's 13, 51, and 52. Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against their persecutors and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they just, you know, uh, preempted Taylor Swift by 2,000 years and shook it off. And then what happens is they leave with joy. What is the source of the hope that goes ahead and gets them there? That's what we're going to be looking at as we turn our attention to the middle of the passage, right when the persecution gets going. So let's take a look at verses 46 and 47. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas, once, the, once the, uh, the slander kicked up, they spoke out boldly and plainly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, you meaning the Jewish crowd that was opposing them, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And see, here's what's going on with them. And I know this, this verse isn't very flashy on its own, but with a little bit more context, we can see a really interesting corner getting turned because when Paul got up and he explained the gospel, starting with an Old Testament survey, that wasn't a coincidence. See, Paul and Barnabas understood their work as the continuation of a grand narrative that God had been working ever since the beginning of Genesis that there was a unified story running all the way across where God would take a small group just like Abraham and his family and extend that to blessing all of the families of the earth. And so what happens is their imaginations are so steeped in the story that when they encounter opposition, they respond with scripture. They respond by going back to that very same scriptural story that Paul had shared with the congregation that previous Sabbath. And the verse they quote is Isaiah 49, 6 in the middle of this. Can we get that one on the slide? So this is God talking to Israel. This is God talking to his people who are in the middle of exile. They have been bested and displaced, removed from their homes by a mightier and more powerful empire. That's the Babylonian empire that would like nothing more than to erase Israel and any remembrance of Israel's God from history. That is what God's people are up against. And when God is comforting and shepherding his people in the middle of this, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. That is, undoing the exile is too small. This is what God's really all about. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is the thing that God is about, that God has been about from the very beginning and God continues to be about when the church faces opposition. It is not enough for God simply to undo what was damaged. God is not, in the, is not interested merely in giving back what is lost. God will keep going and redeem it all. This is the lens through which Paul and Barnabas understand their mission. And so here's what happens. They, they talk to a Jewish group. The Jewish group turned up some persecution and they realize, well, this is actually the opposition that we're running into is actually an opportunity because their imaginations were steeped in a story that went all the way back to Genesis, a story where time and again, God gets his plans accomplished, not despite obstacles, not despite opposition, but because of them. In Genesis, God births a nation through Isaac because Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. In Exodus, God speaks through Moses because Moses had a speech impediment. God wages war through David because David was too scrawny to fit in Saul's armor. 
God gives life through Jesus because Jesus died. God exalts Jesus because Jesus embraced humiliation. Time and again, the obstacles are not the problem. The obstacles are actually the means by which God does what God does. And that's exactly the faith that Paul and Barnabas had when they encountered their opposition. That's exactly the faith that empowered them to leave the situation shaking the dust off their feet, moving on with joy. That is precisely the faith that gets validated in the very next verses. Let's take a look at 1348. When the Gentiles heard this, when the Gentiles heard that there was a scriptural plan for salvation to go all the way to the last places in the earth, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. Here's what happens. It's the, the church is the unstoppable kingdom of God, not despite the opposition and the obstacles, but because of it. The obstacles are still part of the plan. The obstacles were part of the story all the way back in the beginning when God promised Abraham that he would bless all of the families of the earth with his family. And that story continues on for us today. The very fact that we are here thousands of years later, thousands of miles across the globe, proclaiming the very same Jesus that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed shows that God is not done telling this story that he's been telling from the very beginning. We are in a new moment in church history with the church in America being on decline. These are obstacles that are the products of various historical and social scientific things that are new. That's true. But the story is an old and an ancient one. And it's one where God shepherds his people and God blesses his people and God reaches salvation to the ends of the earth, not despite, but because of the obstacles that we run, in, that we run into. So the question for us is not, will the church survive? It will survive. It will continue to survive. The, church for, uh, the question for us is not, will we be able to connect the dots in a culture that is forgetting some of the fundamental concepts that gird our faith? The church always finds new ways to connect and communicate, new ways to reiterate the same message. We will make innovation and we will make a way to communicate to the next generation. The question for each of us is, are we going to participate in that thing that God is doing? The question for each of you is not, are you going to leave it to the church to solve these problems, but are you going to be the church? Are you going to be the people reaching out to those around us, to those different from us? See, the opposition that Paul and Barnabas encountered from that Jewish, that Jewish part of the congregation that wasn't having any of their message, those people were steeped in the story of the Old Testament, but their imaginations weren't attuned to some of the implications. They weren't ready for the God of Israel to also be the God of every nation. And so when Paul and Barnabas come in, and they proclaim the gospel, what happens is this group, they judge themselves unworthy of the gospel and don't want to participate in that story in the way that Paul and Barnabas want to. And I think their unwillingness to participate in that story, that for us is not just an illustration of the kind of opposition that the church might encounter. That is also a warning to us because I think it is all too easy for us 
to close our imaginations to the kinds of new avenues that God is going to be bringing. See, the message of the gospel, that Jesus lived the life we could never live, that Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, that God raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits of the redemption that we will one day all experience, that message is the same. That message has been the same from 33 AD. But the ways in which we need to tell it continue to grow and adapt and the people that we reach with that message are going to continue looking different as that gospel message moves successfully. And I think sometimes we run the risk of unqualifying ourselves from participating in that by not recognizing just how wild it is for God to do the thing that he's doing, and that is filling our church with people who are different from us. See, as the gospel moves forward and as we are the church who bring the gospel to the next people that God is trying to reach, we are going to have to learn ways to build bridges like never before. We are going to have to learn how to be loving and winsome friends and neighbors to people who do not think the way we do, to people who do not vote the way we do, to people who do not live the lifestyles that we would choose for ourselves, to people who think of Jesus as challenging or enthralling for reasons that are completely different than the ways that we think about Jesus. We're having the same message time and again, but we're going to have to rise to the challenge of learning to communicate it in new and fresh ways to new and fresh people that we're maybe not ready to think we can reach. One example of this is the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She is a Christian theologian who is an authoritative voice on Christian engagement with the LGBT community. She's also an authoritative voice on hospitality, and that's because of her own personal story. In the late 1990s, Rosaria Butterfield, she was a, uh, a professor of English and of women's studies at Syracuse University. And she was living with her girlfriend and was a major community activist at the time. By every statistical metric, by every prediction, she's the last person that you would expect to become an evangelical Christian, much less one that later marries a pastor who pastors a small Orthodox Presbyterian church in North Carolina. But that's exactly the story that God had for her. And the reason it happened is because when she had put a, uh, an article in a newspaper, she got a lot of hate mail from Christians who didn't like the implications of what she was saying. And she got one letter from a pastor in Syracuse that was not combative, that was not bellicose or belligerent or anything like that. It was just curiosity, open-mindedness, just a simple invitation. And for some reason, that, that contact point, it stood out to her and it made her think, well, what if I actually reach out to this person? What if I do this thing that's really strange and just take up his invitation to meet at his house for dinner? What if I go ahead and do that? And the wild thing is that she did. And then over the next several years, she was able to have a series of careful and slow moving, but still very critical and vitally important questions about what Christianity was, about who Jesus is and all of these things. You know, when I was growing up in the church, I, um, my parents met in a church choir and I remember the worship wars of the 90s. I remember what it was like for churches to 
get really hot about, well, do we have choir-led worship or do we have band-led worship? What is the worship style that we should actually be embracing? And eventually, the church that I grew up in settled on a strategy that worked for them. And our church eventually settled on a strategy that works for us. What you're going to hear from the band in a few minutes is a mix of traditional and contemporary songs done in a winsome contemporary style. And the thing is, to get to that point, that was a lot of challenge and a lot of change. And for us to start working the other way on the decline of the church in America, it's going to be much more challenging than just the things that our churches dealt with in the 1990s when the worship wars of the 90s rolled around. We have to ask ourselves, what comfort zones are we hiding in? And are we willing to break out of those comfort zones? What opportunities is God shepherding us to encounter with the people around us? Have we unqualified ourselves from participating in the movement of the gospel because we think it just can't be done or that God cannot use us? Or are we willing to be the church in a moment where the church is encountering obstacles, the obstacles that might be the key for the church to actually succeed in the coming decades and centuries? I shared with you some really scary numbers when I got up here this morning. But I want to leave you with some far more encouraging numbers because as challenging and as steep the uphill climb will be for us to reach a culture where Christianity is increasingly irrelevant, the truth is that God is not simply in the business of restoring what was lost, but God is all about redeeming it all. And God is still at work. See, the Christian movement in America it's on decline. But the world Christian movement, the movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth, that is hardly in decline at all. So I want to throw up on here some numbers. This is from the 2011 ver edition of Philip Jenkins' The Next Christendom, a book that wrestles with the implications of the fact that the world Christian movement is not going anywhere. In fact, it is wildly expanding going into the 21st century. So all of these numbers that you see, these are the numbers of believers in millions. And so as of 2010, there were 2,291 million, as in 2.3 billion believers. In 2050, we are projected to have 3.2 billion believers. That's a billion with a B. More Christians in 2050 than in 2010. But here's the wild thing that's going on is the church, as it continues to expand into the 21st century, is going to look wildly different than the church of the 21st century. And more and more, for us to be American Christians, it's going to be kind of a strange oddity, a little bit like Swedish Buddhist or something like that. Because here's what's going on. See, in Europe, you'll notice this line for, for the numbers of Christians in Europe. In 1970, 492 million. 2010, 588 million. Projection for 2050, 530 million Christians. Broadly speaking, Christianity in Europe is projected to continue to stay in decline. But if you look at the numbers for Africa, for Asia, for South America, you're seeing crazy things go on. Africa, 10 million Christians in 1900, over a billion in 2050. Asia, 22 million in 1900, by 2050, 601 million. See, 
even though the story looks like it's meeting a point of failure in America, the truth is that the world Christian movement is continuing to move on strong, and God is not done with that story that he's been telling from the very beginning. And one of the things that we are going to encounter as this movement, as the story goes forward, is we are going to have the privilege of a front row seat at seeing the church change around us. So the question for us is, are we ready? Are we willing to be a part of this? Are we willing to be a part of the movement where the pews next to you start looking different because the church is reaching new people? The message of Jesus and the message of the gospel is unstoppable. New people are hearing it, but that message is the same. Jesus lived, lived a life that we could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. God raised Jesus from the dead in accordance with Scripture's grand story and as a first fruit of the kind of redemption that we are all going to experience. That story, that message, it's the same, and it's a message that is just as relevant for us now as it was 20 years ago, as it was 2,000 years ago. That message is not going anywhere. Now, if you're hearing this and you're thinking for the first time, hey, or maybe for the first time in a while, maybe I'm interested in being a part of this movement. Maybe I want to believe this message that seems to be unstoppable. We have a way for you to do that. You can go ahead and text Jesus to this number, 720-513-1933. Then we have some of our staff. There's a real person on the other end of that, and we'll be able to get in contact with you if you want to go ahead and join this unstoppable movement. So with that, I'll go ahead and pray. <clears throat> God, I pray that you would give us imaginations steeped in your grand story, that you would let us see that the story that you have been telling with your people from the very beginning is not just a series of examples of nice things to do for people, but is a story of how you will not be done when you have simply fixed what is broken, but you will keep going until you redeem everything. That you are not just the God of Israel, but you are the God of the whole world. And that you are calling and empowering and equipping all of us to participate in that ongoing story in ways that we have never yet seen. 